Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to be responding to a video put out by a blogger um, at queertheology.com asking, was Jesus polyamorous? Yeah. Uh, also, I know my friend Andrew Rappaport is going to be doing a review of this on this week's Rap Report. So if you want to find that on iTunes or look up Rap Report of two Ps. I think, <laughs> maybe one, but I'm pretty sure it's with two Ps. Uh, check out the rap report. Uh, who, he'll be covering the same topic probably in a much more concise way than I would. If you appreciate the, ep- the content of this episode, why not head on over to Patreon to become a sponsor or follow the Become a Sponsor link on the blog, freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. If you uh, don't want to support us financially or are unable to or for whatever reason choose not to but still appreciate the content, why not go over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and review. That helps me just as much by uh, helping the Freed Thinker podcast show up higher in search results. So with that, let's jump right into the show asking, was Jesus polyamorous? I think you are going to guess my answer, but let's let's get to it anyways. Enjoy the show. So in this episode, I'm going to be responding to a short video put out by Brian Murphy of the website QueerTheology.com, in which he argues that Jesus would not only have approved of polyamory, but is himself polyamorous. While many responses from evangelicals and conservatives will be calling down fire and brimstone for the blasphemy of the video, which it most assuredly is blasphemy, my purpose here is to, as objectively as possible, show some of the hermeneutical and theological problems with the video, as well as with liberal theology in general, and attempt to and how they attempt to remove the scriptures as their authority. Now, normally, I'd walk right through the video in, or, in order uh, from start to finish first, and then make all the theological connections at the end. This time, because there are so many issues that need to be addressed in tandem, rather than a bottom-up approach, I'm going to do a top-down approach. Let me lay out some of the theological and hermeneutical concepts that will uh, will keep that we'll need to keep in mind, and then we'll go through the video a little bit more quickly and see how they apply. Or at least we're going to go through about the first half of it, even though it's only about a three-minute video. You'll see why. Okay, so let's start with some hermeneutical considerations. The first hermeneutical principle that we'll need to keep in mind is what's called the analogy of faith or the rule of faith. To be honest, I've never really understood why we call it that. It's drawn from a passage in Romans, but because it's really nothing to do with an analogy or of faith. But 
it's the label that we have in the literature since about the time of the Reformation or before, so we're stuck with it. But basically, what the rule is, is that we allow clear passages of the scriptures to help us interpret unclear passages on the same subject. There's more to the principle than that, but for our purposes here, this is the aspect of the rule that we're going to be using and exploring. An example of this can be seen when comparing Psalm 34.15 and John 4.24. Psalm 34.15 reads, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. If we read this on its own and had no other passages in the Bible about the ontology and the nature of God, we might be inclined to not read this anthropomorphically. Maybe we would think that God had actual eyes and ears. Yet, John tells us uh, in John 4.24 that God is spirit. John is the didactic, straightforward statement, and Psalm 34 is a poetic statement. And so we do not try to allegorize the didactic statement to make it fit the symbolic, less clear one. Rather, we understand the poetic statement in Psalm 34 to not mean that God has physical eyes and ears, but rather he is watching over his people and hears their prayers. This rule commonly applied when we have the use of metaphor in the Bible and where the intended meaning may not be clear or where it butts up against another verse that may be more clear. This leads us to our second hermeneutical principle, and that is that parables and symbols typically have only one meaning. When we come across the metaphorical language in the Gospels, when Jesus calls to Jerusalem that God is like a mother hen who longed to gather her chicks to herself, we understand that there is a singular idea being presented here. God desires to protect his own people and Jerusalem would do well to return to him. What we do not do is derive a set of ontological facts about God from the symbol. We do not say that God is actually a cosmic bird, that the Jews were all hatched in eggs, and that we should cluck in our prayers to speak to God. We also do not derive a series of ethical prescriptions from it, that we should use chicken wire to keep people in the church to not leave God, or we should only feed people chicken feed and corn and keep them warm by sitting on them. That is, we do not allegorize the symbol in which we would assign numerous features their own direct truths and try to connect them all to reality. There's one significant symbolic meaning behind the symbol. We shouldn't even see that God, who is consistently self-described in masculine terms with masculine pronouns, should be identified as female because a mother hen is the female sex of that species. The metaphor has one point, and we do not derive other metaphysical or ethical points from it. This is a common mistake, especially when dealing with the parables of Jesus as well, where people will see them uh, make some deep theological points by simple uh, artifacts of the parable that run allegorically or even in contrast to the main singular point that Jesus actually had in mind. So those two principles of hermeneutics, that the clear interprets the unclear and that symbols symbolize one thing, will help us quickly understand the problems with the statements that Brian's going to make in this video. But before we start responding directly, let us also explore several biblical theological truths that will help us understand why this video is so problematic. First, individual believers are never called brides of Christ. The church, collectively, universally, is considered the bride of Christ. Jesus does not have billions of brides, but he has one bride, the church. 
Another analogy of the way that Jesus relates to the church is that we are called the body of Christ. Collectively, the church is his body. This theology is built on a deeper analogy of the tabernacle or temple. Just as the body is the temple of the soul, so too, as Christ inhabits and dwells in his church, it is as if he is a soul inhabiting the body of the church. These terms are collective terms. I, as an individual believer, am not the body or the bride of Christ. The church universal and collectively is. Individual believers in our specific relationship with Jesus are actually considered brothers and sisters. Second, there is actually a shift in concepts from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I shouldn't say shift so more as a development. In the Old Testament, Israel as God's people was considered the wife of God. Hosea and Micah and other prophets would often accuse Israel of spiritual adultery for quote-unquote cheating on God with other idols. God did not permit them to sleep around. Israel is called a wife of harlotry, where that is literally a whore wife, when she steps out on the, on the husband of her youth. In Micah 2, God is listing some of the grievances that he had against his people and being unfaithful to the covenant engaging with anyone outside of the wife of their youth, the men of Israel had violated God's law. When asked why God no longer looks in favor upon the altar or the sacrifices of the people, Micah says, quote, you ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, end quote. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, singularly and sacrificially. We do not give our love indiscriminately to all women that we want to. Faithfulness to your wife or husband in the singular is the univocal witness of the scriptures from start to finish. Third, in Paul's teaching, we see a strong theme of exemplars, that is, that certain people are to be people that Christians should imitate. We are all to imitate Christ, but Paul tells us that we are to imitate him as he imitates Christ. His life is to be an exemplar in so many ways to the believer, but the main category of people who are to be exemplars of Christian piety are the elders of the church. In the list of qualifications for elder in 1 Timothy 3, we're told that the elder is to be the husband of one wife. With then, in the list for elders in Titus 1, we're told that he is to be faithful to his wife. This is likely built on the notion that the elders are to be morally above reproach. This does not mean that they will never sin, otherwise no one would be qualified to be elder, but they, that they have been sanctified to the point that the big, obvious, bad sins are not an impediment to ministry anymore. They're living exemplars of the righteous life of the saint. One major area that the Bible commonly expressly and repeatedly discusses is that of sexual purity. Not only could we give numerous citations where sexually immoral and uh, sexual immorality is condemned, including adultery and not remaining faithful, but also that there should not be sex outside of marriage. We could think of a passage like Hebrews 13:4, which combines these in the simple statement, quote, that a simple statement that quote marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for god will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous end quote notice here what the author of hebrews does when talking about the marriage bed there are two categories of sexual sin 
Not only is marriage itself to be held in honor, which it's hard to imagine marriage being honored among those who want to have sex outside of it, before it, and during it, but also that the marriage bed can be defiled by both sexual immorality and adultery. Unless one wants to argue that marriage bed can be defiled by certain sexual acts privately among husband and wife, which I think is pretty hard to maintain, we cannot simply say that what defiles it just is adultery, because adultery is isolated as its own sin. Here, the two-ness of the sexes, which is represented in creation and which Jesus uses to discuss marriage as being between one husband and one wife, is likely at play, and I would argue that the primary application of the sexual immorality that the author of Hebrews had in mind, which defiled the marriage bed, just was to allow other people into the bed. If it is secret from the spouse, then it's the adultery side. But if it's approved by the spouse, then it's still the sexually immoral side. It violates the two-ness of the creation as the foundations of marriage and the way it pictured the covenant nature and fidelity of the creator. Okay, with those principles in mind, hermeneutically and theologically, let's now listen to part of this video and make some brief comments as it goes. Jesus is polyamorous. Yeah, you heard me right. Jesus is polyamorous. We know this already though, even if we don't think about it or put it in those terms. If you're one of those Christians who believes in the importance of a personal relationship with Jesus, well, Jesus is having personal relationships with billions of other people too. He's kind of a relationship slut, an empowered, reclaimed sort of slut. Hey there, I'm Brian G. Murphy. I'm one of the co-founders of QueerTheology.com. I'm a Christian and I'm polyamorous. I'm also kind of a slut, the reclaimed, empowering kind of slut, like Jesus. In this segment, we start to see some of the problems that will plague the video. Equivocations. An equivocation is when we use one word in one sense and then switch the meaning to make it mean something else to make a point. What queer theology is going to attempt to do with this video is to defend sexual polyamory, to have romantic sexual relationships with several people with consent of all parties. This final clause is important, by the way. Polyamorous people will say that what differentiates them from adulterers is that adulterers sneak around and cheat on their spouses, where polyamorous people give each other consent and permission to have other romantic and or sexual relationships. That's going to be his point here. Christians can be polyamorous without sinning because Jesus is polyamorous, he says. Here, let me also briefly address the claim that the Bible endorses polyamory because we see the patriarchs take on multiple wives. He doesn't make this point, but a lot of people do, so I want to address it. And I'll give two responses quickly. First, marrying multiple wives is not polyamory, but polygamy. Polyamory is to have numerous romantic relationships with only one or less of them being your spouse. You can be polyamorous without being married. Polygamy is that all romantic and sexual relationships are married relationships. You just have multiple marriages. So those are two distinct concepts. You can't get from polygamy to polyamory. Second is that the Bible never actually condones polygamy. This is an instance where polygamy may be described, but it's never prescribed. We're told that it happens, but it's never endorsed or recommended to us. In fact, in every instance in the Bible where we see polygamy, we find that it wreaks havoc on the families involved. 
You could almost take it as a textual indicator that whenever the author of a narrative takes the time to make special mention of multiple wives, that you could read it like a storm cloud is gathering in the story. There's going to be conflict, drama, and trauma to follow. Sometimes we can ignore that a narrator does not always need to expressly and explicitly tell us when something is bad. They can condemn something by telling a story in a way to show the problems that come from it. This is actually a common feature in Hebrew literature. It's the same way that in a story will take a bad turn whenever we hear about a Levitical priest ministering independently from the tabernacle or the temple. So too often when we read about polygamy in the text, something terrible is going to happen. So it simply is not the case that the Bible affirms polygamy as a viable or God-pleasing arrangement. I'd like to also note that many of us are not fans of the term personal relationship and that type of language anyway that has so captured the mind of late modern American post finneist evangelicals. All humans are in a relationship with Christ. The question just is if that relationship is with a savior or with your judge. Is the God who is near, near in, grath, in, sorry, in grace or in wrath? You have a relationship, but is it a good or a bad one? So in some ways, the personal relationship language just isn't very helpful and actually can skew the biblical way that our covenant relationship with God is spoken of. But in addition to this, notice in his first section what he appeals to. Jesus has relationships with billions of other people. Notice the equivocation. As, we, as I said above, the marital relationship with Christ is a collective metaphor for the entire church. We're not each and individually in a relationship under the marital metaphor. The metaphor for us individually is brothers and sisters if we want to make certain liberties to contextualize it for us. So here we have an equivocation. In order to defend polyamory, the romantic and sexual relationships with multiple people, Brian must appeal to the multiple non-romantic and non-sexual relationships that Jesus has with all of his believers. He must rely on an equivocal use of the term between his two contexts of the term relationship. If we could simply point to numerous different kinds of relationship with numerous people, then we're all polyamorous in that sense. I have a kind of personal relationship with my wife, my kids, my pastor, my friends, my coworkers, my boss, the bagger at the grocery store, and the guy who takes my shirts at the dry cleaners. If simply having numerous relationships, no matter what type of relationships those are, make us polyamorous, then the word just becomes devoid of any real meaning. But that's not what Brian means when he says, quote, I'm a Christian, polyamorous, and also kind of a slut, end quote. He means multiple romantic and sexual partners. That's an equivocation. He's trying to trick you, and he knows it. Jesus' polyamory goes beyond this personal relationship idea, though. It's deeper, biblical even. In Ephesians 5, Paul specifically uses the word marriage to describe Christ's relationship with us. Repeatedly, Paul reminds us that Jesus gave himself for us. Us, the church, which Paul describes as the whole body of believers. In this marriage, Jesus isn't married to one person. He's married to the entire body of believers. Jesus is in a pansexual, polyamorous relationship with us. And so, of course, Christians can be polyamorous. That's a biblical model of relationship. No. 
No, he isn't. This is a prime example of what we discussed above. Here, the language of the church being the bride of Christ is symbolic. It describes in one sense the way that Jesus relates to the church, the universal corporate church. Remember, Jesus isn't described as having multiple brides, but one, the bride, the church, singular. What Brian is doing is trying to draw additional meanings from the symbol while also changing the subjects. While he initially gets it right that it is a corporate term, he then divides it via a division fallacy that invalidly applies the metaphor to all individual believers. Again, we are not individually described as his bride, but as his brothers. Would Brian then push that to justify gay incestuous sexual relationships? I doubt it, but why not? It would follow the same hermeneutical principle. The individuals who he apparently thinks should be called wives are also called brothers. You see, Brian could not deny gay incestuous relationships and remain consistent with his poor hermeneutics here. It gets even more bizarre. The church is also called the body of Christ. So would Brian also think that this would justify someone marrying themselves? Well, why not? The bride is called the, the bride is called the body. Oh, and we individual Christians are compared to the eyes and the ears and the hands. So does that mean that we should be allowed to marry our own eyes? Again, why not? If Brian is right, then I, as, as an individual, am the wife of Christ, but I'm also his own I. And that means that I have the ethical permission to marry whatever I can press through the sieve of that analogy, right? But it keeps going. The people of God in the Old Testament are the wife of God, and in the New Testament, they are the paid for by the blood of Christ as the bride. So would this give us the ethical permission to buy our mothers from our fathers as our own wives to share? 1 Corinthians 5.1 comes to mind where this is expressly condemned. But this is what follows from the hermeneutical hatchet job that Brian is trying to do with the text. We already recognize that God's love for us isn't diminished by God's love for others, and that each of us can have a unique transcendent relationship with the divine. Our relationship with God can be a model for our romantic and sexual relationships as well. And there is the false move from is to ought. Not only does Brian get the is wrong, for that isn't a biblical model of relationship as we saw, it is an entirely unwarranted move to the notion that we can engage in it. Imagine that he was right. Imagine that every Christian was described as the bride of Christ. Would that mean that because that is a metaphor used to describe one aspect of how Christ loves each of us, that therefore we could have multiple romantic and sexual partners? Outside of marriage especially? Well, there's two problems, besides the fact that that's not what the metaphor is. Remember, he's arguing for polyamory, not polygamy. He does not even want the confines of marriage and responsibility on his sex life at all. If we followed his logic, what we would be permitted, if we were permitted at all, would be to have multiple marriages, multiple wives, like the multiple brides that there would be of Jesus under his scenario. But even that wouldn't follow, because this would require two other errors. It would ignore the fact that the metaphor would have one meaning and should not be pressed into the ground and should not be pressed to ground numerous metaphysical or ethical norms outside of that one meaning. But it would also violate the analogy of faith that we talked about at the beginning. 
It would completely ignore the numerous and univocal passages that give us express teaching about God's command for us to have one spouse, to be faithful to that one person, and to not defile the marriage bed by permitting others into it based on the creation order. In order for Brian to avoid this, he would need to move from the metaphor to the didactic literature. He would need to move from the unclear to the clear. What Brian would be doing is deriving an unwarranted principle from a metaphor and then trying to use that to interpret what is clearly and expressly stated elsewhere. And that is even if we had individual Christians being called the bride of Jesus, uh, bride and Jesus having multiple brides, which we don't. So he has absolutely no exegetical or hermeneutical leg to stand on here. Okay, at this point, I'm not really going to continue through the rest of the video. The rest of it is just movements based on his prior false and erroneous claims. He equivocates between love for children and others for sexual and romantic love. Someone, by the way, should really take him through the four loves by C.S. Lewis. And the entire time, I'm just reminded of Micah too. He sits there kind of grinning, and I get that he's kind of he's going for shock value, but I have a hard time. There's something about the way that he's presenting this. And I saved this for the end because I didn't want it to taint my actual hermeneutical and exegetical treatment of his arguments. Not even really arguments, his statements. But there's something about this that he knows what he's doing. And he knows he's being shocking intentionally. He knows he's drawing extreme unwarranted uh, implications from the text. He kind of grins every time he does it. And so this entire time, it reminds me of this passage in Micah 2. Brian tells us that he feels happy and excited when his partners are excited or head over heels for someone else that isn't him. And he thinks God would be too. Well, in Micah 2.17, after the prophet tells the people that they have wearied the Lord, we read, quote, How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them, end quote. Here, Brian is wearying the Lord, not only by distorting and twisting the scriptures, but by doing so in order to call what is evil good. And to say that the Lord, who expressly calls it evil and expressly describes what the confines of marriage and sex inside of marriage should be as his standard, he claims that God is pleased with that. Pray with me for Brian. Pray for him to submit himself to the scriptures and to the will of God rather than trying to have them bend a knee to him and to his desires and pray that his video would be fruitful insofar as it is true. That is, no fruit whatsoever. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or swing on by the Freed Thinker group page on Facebook. Join us again next time as we go through some hopefully interesting content. Good night, and God bless.